Hello, my name is Chessie, and you are listening to Mutualisms, the podcast where we talk about science and art and everything that lands in between it. This week, we are talking to Emma Kerr, who studies elasmobranch microbiome, and we're going to talk to her about that and sewing and our thoughts on arts and crafts. Emma Kerr is originally from California and earned her bachelor's degree in biology from San Diego State University. She is now a PhD student at Flinders University in South Australia, where she studies shark and rave microbiomes. She hopes to make STEM more equitable and improve public marine science education. Outside of science, she's an amateur seamstress, and when she isn't at her sewing machine, you can usually find her at the beach. How are you? How is your week? How are things? I know that it's field season there. You're in a completely different season and day than I am. Yeah, um, it's been a little bit wild here. I was in the U.S. for Christmas and then I came back and it was just like, okay, it's go time Um, because I'm coming up on my one year milestone. So like when you do a PhD in Australia, you have three talks that you give at the end of your first, Mm -hmm. second and third year. So I'm coming up to the end of my first year. So I've got to be like, this is what I did last year. This is like how it's going. Here's my proposed project that I'm going to finish in the next two years. And here's what I've done. So yeah, in between catching sharks and all that stuff. So it's, yeah, hectic. That is so much to do right after coming (laughs) off the holidays. I know that here it's just like launching into everything is is so hard and luckily we have the cushion of winter like we're not I mean I need to go into the field desperately and get some stuff done but that's not like what everyone's doing um so I can't imagine just having to launch into something like that yeah and it's weird because like everybody takes Christmas off here they have vacation here it's Mm -hmm. crazy um I know so Christmas (laughs) like everybody is like not working my supervisor was away for like a month so she was back on the 16th and then it was just like I got back from the U.S. on Tuesday and on Thursday I was like on a boat fishing so Mm. they really like get into it that's good I mean I think it's easier to get into it if you take an actual break yes you know (laughs) so at least at least you're taking actual breaks did you catch anything cool when you when you went fishing recently um yeah so my project is for Jackson sharks focused. Um, so we caught a bunch of them. I know they're so cute. And they remind me of the little horn sharks from California. So yes, that's yeah. fun. Um, and then we caught um, fiddler rays. Um, so those were cool. They were like all the rays here, like way bigger than I expected. Cause like my project in California, we had like the little, you know, bat rays, round rays. And then these yeah. ones are like a mm-hmm. meter and a half. And you're like, oh wow. Okay. <laughs> Jeez. Uh, that could do some damage. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that sounds really fun, really exciting. I love fiddler rays and Port Jackson sharks. All of the like little, well, I guess not like little compared to other organisms, but the smaller relative elasmobranchs with all the fun patterning. I love them. That's where it's at. Um, so, okay. I asked this question of everybody up at the top. Um, because it sets the stage for the theme of the podcast. But um, if you had a Venn diagram and a Lazarus microbiome was on one side and sewing and embroidery was on the other side, what's going in the middle? What what overlaps between the two? Yeah, that's like such a good question. And it's like a fun one to answer because like the Lazarus microbiome field is like relatively small right now. So 
I like know most of the people in it and like we all have a different creative thing but like I think I'm the only one that I know of that does sewing so like a couple of the crafts that I've done I say crafts but we'll we'll answer that question later but I've made <laughs> uh like Christmas ornaments out of felt that are like rays with like little Santa hats and stuff and like it's such a good model for like you can sew a microbe on there you can decorate it with a little microbe like we have like I've made sweaters where it's like you know people get their like organism that they studied on there it's like it's a good model to bring science out in a way that you can explain because you can't look at a shark and be like the microbes look like this because we can't see that tiny so it's nice to be able to scale it up and be like look this is a shark skin these are what could be living on it if you had a microscope right now I really like that yeah like using art as science communication to show people. Um, Cause yeah, I feel like there are so many things that as marine biologists and as people who study elastomobranks that we, we just know and we forget that it's actually really cool knowledge. Um, you know, like I'll tell people, oh yeah, sharks have these really rough, like scale, like dermal denticles that can cut your skin uh, depending on the species and depending what you're doing. Um, and they just think that's the most insane thing in the world. Um, so what would you say is more challenging having to fight with your sewing machine, um, or having to fight with lab equipment? Because I have a sewing machine and I, we don't get along all the time. Really? Interesting. Cause <laughs> yeah. I, I thrifted it. It's old. <laughs> nice. Yeah. I like lab equipment, hands down. I saw that question. I was like, hands down lab equipment. Like the lab I'm in, we're just starting at the university because my professor moved from San Diego to Adelaide. So We've got like brand new equipment, but somehow none of it worked for like the longest time. For So like the last year has just been me being like, this machine should do this, but it doesn't. Why? So hands down lab equipment, like I thrifted my sewing machine and I was like, this is the exact model that I like had before. Like, this is perfect. And we, we just know how we work, but we've like got new lab equipment that I'm like, I don't know what you do, but you cost so much money and I don't want to break you, but you're not doing your job. Okay. Yeah. Like what, what kinds of lab equipment, if you're at liberty to share, um, yeah. which one gives you the most grief? Which one are you fighting with the most? Oh, the one that we, I've resolved my feelings for has been the Sonicator, which for people who maybe don't do DNA stuff, it's basically just a screaming machine. And it just, it like, it uses sound waves, just screams at the DNA to break it up into tiny pieces. So we're trying to break the DNA into 350 base pairs, but we couldn't get it to do exactly that. It was like, oh, let's cut them. Sometimes it's 600 and sometimes at 100. And it's kind of like a lottery of what you're going to get. So that was like the worst one. But also the most annoying one was the micropipettes. Like just some days they'd be perfect and beautiful. And other days it would be like, yeah, you wanted 20 microliters. Here's, you know, 17.5. And you're like, wow. <sighs> what it won't work i need that yeah yeah i my uh, multi-channel pipette does that to me sometimes where i have to right before i put it in my assay wells i have to stare at it really close and look at each of it to make sure that one of them is not off it's it's kind of i kind of would love to get a new one but they're so expensive but oh man so that's so funny that it just screams at the dna to to break it up I feel like, and I don't do anything with DNA, although I am foraying into bacteria and elasmos, very surface level, um, no, no DNA stuff so far. 
But I do feel like working with DNA is is challenging. No, that's what has always uh, seemed to me personally is that somehow working with DNA is just one of the hardest. I guess hardest is hard to say, but DNA is so fragile and difficult, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I take DNA over RNA any day, but it it has its pros and cons because like at the base of it, it's like you've got four bases that makes everything. It should be so easy to do. And then when you're actually doing it, it's like, oh, well, it's actually not as easy as they make it sound so definitely comes with frustrating moments but yeah yeah I like that you bring up that DNA at its core is really just like four base pairs because um last week when I was talking to my previous guest Kayla we were talking about how fiber arts is really just kind of at, at its core string and needle and sometimes fabric, which is also made of string woven together. And you have tons of different art, fiber arts that you can engage in. And it was very similar to, oh my goodness, excuse me, her research, which is breaking down things into like marine chemicals. And so I, I like that that's coming up again, where um, science and art vo- both has these very like common parts like very few parts but when you sum them together in a bunch of different ways you get so much like dna has i mean created life like all different forms of life and the variety of life on earth is truly insane like we can't even conceptualize it right so i like that the four base pairs of dna yeah it's cute how it all comes together in <laughs> such an organized way but you can make so many things out of it mm-hmm yeah. Yeah. Um, what skills do you feel like translate between the world of ring science, microbiology, microbiome stuff, and then also sewing? Um, so you do embroidery and also you make your own clothes, right? Mm-hmm. You made some of your own clothes. Yeah. yeah. What skills kind of come between the two, do you feel like? The one that comes to my brain first, which is probably the most marine biology one, is when we were fishing this week, we were baiting hooks and my coworker was like, Emma, this is just slimy, smelly sewing for you because you really are just threading hooks with fish. And I was like, that is the grossest thing you could have said, but in the best <laughs> way. Um, so immediately that was the first one that comes up. But like, I think so many things like attention to detail, like when I'm looking over, you know, millions of sequences, like I have to make sure that I'm doing it, you know correctly and appropriately to make a constructed finished you know figure or paper or whatever you have to do the same thing when you're you know if you miss a stitch or like even when you're sewing a sweater like it's so annoying to have to go back and unravel all the stuff that you've done and then do it again so things like that like come to mind pretty like quickly when you think about it yeah yeah I guess the thing is though when I'm knitting a sweater and I mess up a stitch sometimes I will just continue Mm -hmm. and I don't do I don't do that with my research in science I I literally can't um I remember and this has to do with elasmo microbiome um I was prepping to leave for the field the night before and I had a nine hour drive the next day um and I went to go get my TSB broth and some little colonies had decided they were going to start growing in it um so something had happened where it gotten contaminated and I had to 
re-autoclave it and like just redo the whole thing. <laughs> but the autoclave had shut off for the night. So I had to do it all the next morning. <laughs> yeah, that's got to be the worst. <laughs> like the field trip stuff is so hard because like we just went on one like where we were taking students out to do microbiome stuff for the first time. So like my PIs put me in charge of packing all the stuff. And so I'm like, I'm so stressed about getting it all done because I'm like, if we forget one thing, like we're just going to a room that has a desk. Like there's no like lab equipment there. It's like, we have to have everything. And I had like forgotten the most important sequencing buffer that you could have, like, it's like the crux of the whole technology is this one buffer. And I had forgotten it. And it's like only an hour drive away. But like, by the time you drive an hour, like your reaction has been happening in your tube. Like it's, it's, no, it's no go. So like we had to come up on the fly with, you know, a way to do it. So it's like one of those things where it's like, okay, I've, I've trained for this. We've got the quick fixes. I'm not going back and unraveling. We are going to make that part of the design now. Exactly. And we yeah, did and it worked. Just, it's how it's supposed to be. Yeah. It's how it, it's how it's supposed to happen. Um, so we keep talking about elasmobranch microbiome. Um, and I'm sure people who, you know, maybe aren't familiar with that are like, what are they keep talking about? Or what do they keep talking about? So I would love for you to talk a bit about your, oh, hi, pup. Oh, hi, puppy dog. <laughs> I thought my cat was going to be the problem. She was walking all over the keyboard like minutes ago. Now she's sleeping on the floor. Um, so yeah, I would love for you to tell us about your research, what elastomeric microbiomes are, why they're important, just go all in all the things you wish you could say to someone at a party when they ask about your research and then they walk away a minute later. <laughs> yeah. I always hit people with the simple, like microbes are everywhere and everybody needs them to survive. And I'm trying to figure out why sharks need microbes to survive. And then they're kind of like, yeah, okay. Microbes. Mm. We'll see you later. <laughs> um, but basically the crux of my PhD is we don't really know why shark microbes are important other than like the foundation that we've set in human models and mice models and other organisms. So my project aims to kind of figure out how the host drives their microbiome and how the environment drives their microbiome. Uh, so like but my first chapter is going to be how the different body sites are assembled because most of the time when we look at shark microbes, we look at them through a 16S lens. 16S is a gene in microbes um, that all microbes have. So it's really easy to be like, this tiny mutation is from one microbe and this tiny mutation is another microbe. It's a really cheap, fast, effective way to get kind of baseline which microbes are present. Uh, the metagenomics, which is this technique that I do, does not use primers. And we look at all of the genes and all of the microbes. So that way I can figure out and identify potentially novel microbes that no one's ever cultured before. Um, and figure out what genes those microbes have that could be potentially helping them interact with the host. Like in the gills, for example, like where there's gas exchange and waste exchange, like are these microbes metabolizing that for the host? Like how is that relationship built? Um, so that's like the crux of my first chapter. That might've been a lot. I don't know what your audience is, but. No, I love it. I love it. Well, they're gonna, they'll love it no matter what. Nice. That's the yeah. goal. <laughs> yeah, so big overarching goal is how do microbes interact with sharks? Um, potentially for their health? Like, how do they interact with the environment? Like, are we discharging wastewater into the environment? And is that wastewater containing potentially pathogenic microbes that could be infecting organisms? Antimicrobial resistance is a hot topic these days where 
microbes are resistant to, you know, any kind of antibiotic treatments that come from aquaculture. So is that impacting wild sharks? Um, and because they have higher levels of heavy metal, are those genes more quickly being integrated into the microbiome? Because there's usually, you know, a heavy metal resistant gene right next to an antibiotic resistant gene. So that could be potentially impacting their health. Wow, that's really yeah. interesting. Yeah, and I know that um, heavy metal exposure, I believe I'm recalling properly, can can negatively affect certain physiological processes. Um, so do you think that antibiotic resistance, so I had a friend who did antibiotic resistance um, in relation to just like general water quality and sediment disturbance. Um, so I've I've had some talks about that with her. But do you think that there is a, a potential problem of antibiotic resistant microbes affecting sharks, like even antibiotic resistant microbes at humans that affects humans? Do you think there's there's um, species cross issues there? I don't know a whole lot about the metagenomic stuff of it. So I, I hope my question makes sense. Yeah. So long story short, we don't really know. Um yeah, classic. Um, there's been with with sharks. That's always the answer. Yeah, it's always the answer. It's like, well, yeah. there's so many of them, and we know nothing about them. Um, there's one study that I read recently that there is like there is antibiotic resistance just in the environment. They're always competing with each other. It's just kind of like a baseline of how the earth works. The problem we are seeing is when we're artificially selecting for really pathogenic, infectious microbes. So in that study, like they didn't find anything like super concerning to be worried about right away it's more of like establishing trends now because like looking back from i think it was 2004 like marine mammals had less antimicrobial resistance genes in their microbiome than they do 10 years later so it's kind of establishing that baseline um is kind of where we're at at the moment luckily for sharks and humans we have pretty different physiologies so like things that are infecting us like tuberculosis probably is not going to be a huge problem for sharks and like vice versa shark microbes are probably not going to be pathogenic to us just kind of worried about that zoonosis kind of happening luckily we don't interact with marine stuff as much as terrestrial organisms but you know just establishing trends and figuring out where we are orienting ourselves is kind of where we're at yeah whenever i'm working with my shark bacteria i'm always very careful but i know that I probably don't need to worry so, so much because my physiology is so different, but I still just, I'm an anxious person. I like to be careful. Yeah. It's always good to be cautious. Yeah. And like my lab, we're a PC2 lab. So it's basically just like, it's not level one, no worries. It's level two, like maybe some worries you should probably be careful. Um, so that kind of keeps us safe, you know, always wash your hands when you're done in the lab, like nothing to be stressed about, but definitely don't like, you know, go out of Don't your way to finger yeah yeah <laughs> basically like wear your gloves yeah. you know all that good stuff ppe mm -hmm, mm -hmm. wear your gloves and take your full course of antibiotics yes always very important always please always take your full course of antibiotics yes yeah i have always well one time i didn't finish my course of antibiotics but that's because i had a major uh allergic reaction to it in the 11th hour i was on like day nine of ten and then all of a sudden had hives so that was fun. Um, 
Do you feel like you've been encouraged to sort of combine your thinking around art and science um, or separate it uh, growing up in society and studying and, and just who you've interacted with? Do you feel like you've been encouraged to to merge the two or sort of think about them separately? Um, that's, yeah, a really hard question to answer, I think, because like when I was a kid, I wasn't like a scientist. I was like, oh, science is kind of fun and cool. And like art is also kind of fun and cool. And, you know, sports are kind of fun and cool. And it wasn't until I got to like undergrad, grad school where I was like, oh, wow, like I am like, this is my job now. Like, I'm just really doing this. And so this is my fun hobby that I can also incorporate my job into and vice versa. So I guess I wasn't like actively encouraged to incorporate the two as a kid, but I wasn't discouraged. Um, but again, I also grew up like my parents didn't go to college, so I was never in that like you have to be, you know, X, Y, Z lawyer, doctor, whatever. So they kind of were like, yeah, do what you want to do. And then here I am doing that. So I came from a pretty privileged environment to be like, yeah, I just got to, you know, kind of explore my interests and stuff. So. Yeah, that's awesome. When when did you know that you wanted to be a scientist or study science in college? Um, yeah, I think like in high school, I always like I took, you know, you have to take all the kinds of different classes. I always took science AP like college level classes. And that's where I was like, oh, wow, this is like getting pretty interesting. Like, you know, English was never like my, you know, I didn't love writing stories or things like that. That wasn't the way I was creative. So like I just fell into the science path and then when I got to San Diego State it was like marine biology was like one of the best things you could do there because like you know you can take surfing for credit like you're right on the ocean like why would you not do marine biology you can take surfing for credit yeah it like doesn't count towards your major but like if you're like a credit short of being like a full-time student or you know things like that like you can take surfing for credit nice yeah so when I got there I was like okay science can be really cool and fun and not just like cancer research or like medical stuff, which is amazing. And I love that people do that. I couldn't be that person. Um, So I guess it was when I got to undergrad and then like research, joining a research lab, like really brought that out where I was like, okay, yeah, this is the place that I want to be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, When you were younger, what, what did you want to be? Um, Like what was your, what I want to be when I grow up answer? Yeah. When you were a kid. Um, marine biologist was never one of them. Um, for like a long time, I was like, I'm going to open a bakery or I'm going to, you know, I always, science became like kind of a thing on the scene when I was in middle school, high school. It was like, I'm going to do science. But I, didn't, I don't think I really knew at the time what that meant. So it was just like, oh, I'm going to sit in a lab all day, which is like not what I do now and not what I want to do in the future. Yeah. Yeah. I, I relate to that because I remember, you know, growing up, I wanted to be a fashion designer um, or an astronaut. I kind of waffled around between between those. But marine biologist really was never, um, never my answer until I hit high school. And then even then, I, I, too, did not really entirely conceptualize what being a marine biologist actually was. Um, because I feel like our media representation is not the most accurate. And you could say the same for probably every other profession. Um, but I, I feel really lucky that I ended up absolutely adoring research. Um, 
I just kind of like happily fell into it. Um, luckily. Yeah. Um, who do you think would be better at art, a shark or a stingray? I guess better at art is a bit of a subjective yeah. sentence, but. Interesting. Yeah. It definitely depends on the medium. Sewing, I feel like the stingrays might have advantage just based on tail length and mobility. But like if you're going to do like painting, I don't know. Denticles are a great stamp to have to do different patterns. I don't know. What are your thoughts? I agree with you. What about sculpture? I feel like sharks would be really great sculpture artists. They have those teeth. That's kind of all they have, but you can get a lot done with them. Yeah. And like some of <laughs> they them, don't like, really have thumbs. Yeah. I mean, thresher sharks have that big, long, beautiful tail. They can, they can work with that. There's just so much diversity within sharks. It's hard to be like, yeah, all sharks could do this. But yeah, that's a good point. Sculpture is a good medium for them. I think thresher sharks would be like the painters. They'd be like the the abstract painters of the elastomeric world. Yeah, they seem sure. like they have those personalities too. Yeah, yeah, and maybe sawfish would be also really good at sculpture because they have that rostrum. Although I know it's a little bit more delicate than jaws are at least as far as I understand um, about sawfish. So what's your favorite elasmobrink? Oh, that's such a hard question. Cause it, for me, it changes all the time. Um, I think I'm like, especially attached to bat rays because of one experience I had in the kelp forest where it was like a really bad day. And I was like, you know, we always manifest before we go in the ocean. We're like, what do we, what do we want to see today? And we just, you know, sort of ask the ocean, you know, and I was like, you know what? I like, don't know. I will like let the ocean tell me what I need to see when I'm there. And so, you know, like seasickness around the boat, whatever. And like, we get down and we're like doing science. We're collecting you know, transects. And like, I look up and this bat ray, like in, like under this like kelp canopy, like swims, like, so they're so majestic over us. And I was like, yeah, that is what I needed today. Thank you, ocean. Like it's, everything is okay. So I would have to say bat rays. <laughs> I too love bat rays. I would love to do a PhD on bat rays. Um, people are always so, you know, when you say, when you tell people like, oh yeah, I study sharks, you you get such a reaction. Um, but really, I just love the, the stingrays. I just, I'm all about them. I love the batoids. I'm a big, big fan um, of those guys. So yeah, I, I echo your bat ray love today. Um, so how does your scientific process, your experimental design, um, how does it inform and influence your artistic process and vice versa? Do you, do you find similarities? Do you draw inspiration between the two? Hmm. Yeah. I don't think I have really connected my like experimental design with like artistic design. Mm -hmm. Or at least like this, the same process. How do you feel about the process between like, coming up with an art project versus coming up with like a science research project. Yeah, that's interesting. I feel like both kind of go in like the, you know, you kind of have an idea and then you sit down to think it out and you like kind of go through the literature and you're like, okay, well, this person's done this and this person's done this. My project fits in between these two or, you know, they did a really great, you know, model on algae. Let's see if we can apply it to sharks. So I guess that sort of goes in line with like, oh, I saw this great design in this store and, I, you know, this creator made this pattern. Like, let me see what I can do to modify them. Um, I guess I haven't really thought about connecting the two until right now. 
so thanks for that. How do you do yeah, it? Yeah, of course. Um, you know, that you're turning it back on me. I like that question. I guess uh, to highlight one difference, I do feel like with um, science, I'm looking for knowledge gaps and I'm trying to find where I can fill in those knowledge gaps for myself and others. So of course I like for it to be something that I'm interested in, but I also like for it to be useful and not necessarily in an applied way where it has to be used to inform management or something like that, but at least in a way that, you know, we can, can build on it. And when I'm doing at least fiber arts, um, I'm not really thinking about what gap to fill in what hasn't been done before. I'm thinking about what what I like and I feel comfortable in and what I would want to wear. Now, while I'm writing, um, and I haven't written poetry in a very long time, but when I would write poetry, I did similarly feel like I wanted to write, and this is so goddamn pretentious, but I was like, I'm gonna put words together in a way that no one ever has before. Um, similar to the like, I, I really enjoy novel research, like new sort of just, you know, like I feel like in, in microbiome, you do have a lot of novel research, especially with the lasmos because so much has not been done. So similar there, I do feel like both processes involve a lot of creativity. Like I think the experimental design process, especially when you are ground truthing methods requires a lot of that creativity and and hands-on sort of stuff right how do you feel would you concur yeah I would agree with that and I think there's there's good opportunity here to like take that back and do that with my proposal and just like thinking about like how to incorporate the hands-on stuff into something that it's very much just like I need to write this down in a way that academics are going to be receptive to it versus like a creative thing where it's like I'm making this for me and no one else has to like it but me Yeah. And I do think, um, especially as academics having to do that sort of writing and, and I mean, not having to, we also do it because we love it, but that sort of being the goal is like the writing is not just for you. It is for everyone else that is for the greater good of the field, being able to come home and do something hands-on and creative that you really like just for yourself, I think is very helpful. Right. Um, do you do you have a lot of time to do sewing and embroidery in your current PhD right now? Um, yes and no. Like I got used to I did like last two years of undergrad during COVID. So I was like working from home doing that whole thing. So like I got to sew like pretty much every day if I wanted to. Because it's like, oh, I have an hour between classes. I don't have to go anywhere. I'll just, you know, work on a project really quick. Now it's very much like I commute to my school, which is only like 15 minutes away from my house but you know you got to think about you got to get up make breakfast do that whole thing um so like by the time I get there I work all day I get home I'm usually like salty or like I've been in the lab all day so I'm like mentally exhausted so like I'm struggling to find a project that's like low brain wave necessary to do but yes I do have time like the work-life balance in Australia is better than America in almost every way Um, like we just had a public holiday on a Thursday, um, which is not a good public holiday to have 
just from the context of the holiday itself. But everybody, you know, takes the day off. Like if it's a public holiday, everybody takes the day off. Nobody like is like, oh, well, I guess I should get some work done. They're like, no, it's break time. We're going to the beach. So that has been a nice culture shift. That sounds so nice. I have a whole to-do list written out for what I'm going to do on Sunday. (laughs) How I'm going to catch up on my work. Oh, no. I thought you meant a creative to-do list. Well, some of it is creative. Some of it is creative. But some of it is, like, scholarship applications and just stuff that, like, needs to get done. Um, What's your – what have you made most recently? And then what is the – what's your favorite thing that you've made? Oh, tricky questions. I think my most recent favorite make, might be both, is, like, a little picture frame that I embroidered. So, like, I did the, like, little corner edges like you would in a scrapbook and then did, like, little, you know, flowers and leaves decorations around it. That's, like, my most recently I've completed make. Um, Favorite make of all time. I haven't made it yet. Does that still count? Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. I think that's a great answer. You know, we're always... We're always growing. Yeah. yeah. Um, I just, my granny is big into quilting. That's like kind of how I got into sewing. And so what I've been doing is I've been making field hats for people. So like out of their, like, you know, their jellyfish, you know, person, make them a jelly hat. Um, and, you know, if you're doing sharks, thank you, shark hat, coral, coral hat, right? So it's like, you know, the bucket hats with the little ties. So I've like got scraps from everybody's projects that I've made. So I'm trying to make those into a big quilt. So it's like, here's, you know, little, you know, memories of everybody in their, you know, study organism, because they do like your organism becomes like part of your identity in a way. And so it's like, it's going to be so cute to have everybody's, you know, science and friendship all in one little quilt. And it all weaves together just like the natural world. (laughs) Yeah, it feels like a very Leslie Nope moment. But I like hope when it's done, it's like a beautiful reminder of like why science is cool, because sometimes we forget why science is cool when it's like really hard. And you're like, I just wish my, you know, organism would eat something that I'm feeding them or I wish their microbes would grow on the plates I made for them. It's like, you know, it's a good, nice reminder that like, look at everybody's projects that they've done. And this is so cool. I love that so much. That is, that's a great project. I'm excited to see it when you're done with it. Yeah. I um, keep, please. I'm oh, sorry. No, I was just going to say, please do share. Yeah. Yeah. I keep, I always forget to like, you know, film stuff when I'm doing it. I need to get yeah. better at being like, oh, look, I'm doing this thing. Yeah. I mean, it's also hard to remember. And sometimes it's just also annoying to be messing with your phone. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Um, what kind of agar do you use? I'm curious. And if it's like special agar and you're not able to share, um, definitely understand. But I know that we've been using marine and blood agar and we've had, you know, exciting results. I, I absolutely love getting these little bacterias from these sharks. It is so cool. Like the life within life is just mm. Chef's kiss, you know? It's beautiful, yeah. I've never worked with blood agar, actually. Um, okay. So, the, Am I pronouncing it wrong? I, I'm or in Australia. I'm like trying to assimilate to the culture. Zooplankton, <laughs> zooplankton. Okay, okay. Yeah. Okay. Agar, like, agar. I I yeah. Both work. We know what we mean. Yeah. yeah. Um, never use blood agar, but I think that'd be cool. I don't do blood. I don't, like, take blood from 
them. I just mostly do their skin, Gills and Cloaca, because they're available and, you know, they're the most kind of important body sites we can get to without killing them. Um, but I grow the skin microbes on artificial seawater plates, which you can find the like recipe, recipe protocol on high media. Um, I also use marine broth, uh, 2216 or something yeah and then i'm trying to select for like potential pathogens so i also grow them on vibrio plates uh tcbs i haven't actually grown any from eagle rays yet on those plates so that's, oh, that's kind of a nice sign yeah so that's like a little sigh of relief and then we also do mcconkie agar which is yeah for heterotrophic bacteria yeah yep okay vibrio is like one of my worst fears so i'm happy to hear that you're not getting it to grow i'm not getting it to grow but i'm finding it in my sequences especially from the cloaca which could just be their like part of their regular gut microbiome potentially like we always have e coli it's you know not a big deal it's kept to check by the other microbes but it is a little bit of like oh are you guys okay do your tummies hurt like <laughs> you have a little stomach ache yeah <laughs> But they oh we recaptured two of them this year that we caught last year. So they're okay. still, you know, doing great. So that's at least something. Okay. That's really awesome. Yeah. Uh the my fear of Vibrio didn't start until I got to the East Coast where the water is warmer. And it makes me really miss California because growing up in California, you know, when you have a cut, um, you stick it in the ocean. You know, the ocean is 55 degrees. What's going to get you? Nothing. And you come out and you have a nice little pink line. Here, you absolutely, at least in the summer, should not be doing that. And it's been an adjustment. I don't know if it's similar um, where you are, but yeah. Yeah, no. Got tons of embryo. No, here, so far, so good. Like, part of it is there's nobody that lives in Australia, really. Like, that people do. But like compared, like I'm from LA, so it's like, you know, there's people everywhere here. The population is so small compared to the, like the amount of land there is. So like really like low impact comparatively, like when it rains here, people like go in the ocean the next day and it's like no biggie. But like if you were in, you know, San Diego, San Francisco, like you would not go in the ocean the day after it rained. Like no, absolutely don't touch not, it. that's a no-go. So here it's like less of an issue. And Adelaide is also like, Australia, you know, South Australia especially is temperate. So, you know, pretty like low stakes for, you know. Just letting them in. Nice little open wound for all the microbes of the ocean. The ocean is pretty gross, but in a beautiful way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's a lot there. <laughs> There's yeah. a lot there. <laughs> yeah. And to me, it's always funny what people stress about because they're like, oh, my gosh, like I'm going to, you know, get eaten by a shark or whatever. And I was like, if you've swallowed seawater, you have doubled the amount of microbes that were in your body before you swallowed a teaspoon of seawater. So I'm just going to keep that knowledge to me. But <laughs> yeah. well, now you told me. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, you're not stressed about getting shark bites when every time you go out there. No. Which I feel like a lot no, of people I am are. I am not. I, I honestly welcome it a little bit, depending on the shark. Yeah. A little nibble is fine. A huge, you know, bite is not great. Yes. 
Yes, a little nibble. I've had a little nibble before. It was from a bamboo shark. It did nothing. Um, I would not like a little nibble from a shark whose mouth is uh, wider than my head. Yeah. So um, where do you get inspiration from for both your science and your your art? Mm. Inspiration from science is a little bit challenging when my science is like so specific, but it's kind of fun to be able to be like, I'm going to be a microbiologist today and really like dive into the microbes because there's like so much diversity there that we don't really think about because we can't see them. That's like the hardest part for me is like, I can't see what I'm looking at. I'm looking at mostly like clear tubes with clear liquid in them that like eventually becomes something on the computer but it's nice. So it's like nice to see my colonies growing or it's nice to like agar art is like big where you take different microbes with different genes in them and you kind of make a little design. Um, yeah, that's fun. And that kind of translates to the art thing. Um, Have you done that? Have you made agar art? I haven't actually done it personally, but it, I think it'd be really cool to do it with my microbes. Unfortunately, most of mine are just like, you know, clear yellow kind of color which that's what I've noticed. That's what, that's what I'm seeing on, on my uh, marine agar plates too. Yeah. Cool. Okay. That makes me feel good that I haven't like, you know, contaminated them or whatever. Um, yeah, cool. We got one. I know that's, one. that's always a fear. I know. Ooh. Yeah. So she's kind of cute. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out what she is right now. Um, but yeah, in terms of art, I like to be in nature a lot. I think that's a very like ecology take, but like, I love to just go to the ocean and be like, you know what? Like there's so many pretty things in the ocean and like something in South Australia I didn't expect was the sponges here are incredible. And like people are like sponges are overrated, you know, because they're, you know, just little sessile, you know, blobs pretty much, but they're so beautiful here in so many different colors and shapes. And, you know, their morphology is like really beautiful. And so seeing those, it's like, okay, cool. Yeah, I can make something that is pretty amazing based on your like naturally evolved self from millions of years ago. I love that you bring up sponges because the person I talked to last week is studying sponges for their PhD. And we actually had a chat about sponges and how gorgeous and cool they are and how they're very frequently overlooked, but they're secretly very badass. Um but yeah, they are gorgeous. They're super duper gorgeous. Off the coast of Georgia, we have Gray's Reef, which is a live bottom reef, which also has tons of sponges. Um, and just the shapes and the colors is so cool. Um, I got together with some friends who I was on that research cruise with, actually, and we made polymer clay little models of different species of sponges. And I still have to glue mine together to make my little reef. But yeah, I mean, that is that is very inspiring. Um, yeah, I always say I want to like knit a kelp sweater, but I have no, no, it, it's going to be very complicated. And I'm just I'm going to have to sit down and do do the math and do the. Um, the designing and it's going to take a hot second. That is something else that I feel like science and art have in common, or at least science and fiber arts is the math involved there's a lot of math yeah. yeah i have luckily escaped most math most of my math is in the lab where it's like concentrations so it's like the same formula every time you know pretty straightforward 
statistics I don't necessarily count as math because someone has done the math for me. I just apply the math. But but I have luckily, you know, kind of avoided math in my, at least so far in the PhD. <laughs> so you're doing more math when you're sewing a garment for yourself, you'd say? More measuring, at least. Sewing, luckily, is not as math heavy as knitting. I would like to dabble in knitting, but it is like the counting and, you know, the math that kind of is like, oh, that's like a task heavy hobby to pick up. I would like to try it, though. I will teach you once you get started, you don't have to count every stitch as you're stitching. You can just kind of turn and burn. Typically, you do have to count rows, but I've gotten to the point where I don't have to count as I knit most of the time because I can go it and maybe it's a little tedious and it would be easier if I just counted as I went but I can go in and I can count the different stitches and I know kind of where I am um I do also sometimes have kind of a fuck it attitude with it and it's gonna be what it's gonna be but yeah I've taught I said this last week but I've taught several friends um here how to knit and they've both said I did not know there was so much goddamn math in this and I'm like yeah well if you want it to fit you we have to do some multiplication <laughs> we have to do some multiplication and division and it's okay we'll get through it yeah. um knitting is math sewing at least you just kind of look at the pattern that you've got unless you're making the patterns which I don't typically do you're just you just got to measure and go um so getting to one of my favorite questions that I wrote down um so how do you feel about the word craft as it relates to fiber arts? And I know you mentioned this in your email to me when you reached out and I saw that and I got so excited and I'm, I'm really excited to talk about this, the word craft and how, you know, it seems to mostly just apply to fiber arts a lot of the time. Yeah. The way that that has evolved is really fascinating and like kind of typical, like anytime women are doing something there's always going to be a way to spin it that means that you're doing something like less cool or good or valuable than if a man was doing it and that is like an unfortunate reality and it is like it's a huge bummer um so i'm kind of in the camp of like call it what you want to call it when you're doing whatever activity art craft whatever it is that you're doing um i know like some women online that i've been seeing are like it's an art and I will not call it a craft because that is how men are, you know, making it less so. I'm kind of more in the camp and like, that's totally cool for them. I support you. It's all about your choice. I'm more of the camp of like, this is a craft and like craft at its like definition is like something difficult and productive and, you know, you're making something beautiful. So I'm kind of in the camp of like, let's reclaim arts and crafts as like a beautiful, wonderful thing that we're doing that has value versus trying to like follow, not follow, but like kind of like make it into something that men will respect. Because at the end of the day, as a society, men in my lifetime will never respect what I do to the level of if I was a man. And that's just like, I'm kind of sort of not coming to terms with it yet, but trying to. And just like living in the space of like, well, I'm not making my stuff for men. I'm making it because I like it and because other women appreciate it. And that is like where I'm getting the value of the word. So it's like complicated and nuanced, but I'm kind of in the camp of like, yeah, I am doing arts and crafts. And it's like just as valuable, if not more valuable than something that's hanging in a museum that you have to pay to get into. 
Yeah, I 100% agree with you. I'm definitely team reclaim the word craft because you're right. At the core definition, it is something that you have worked hard at to develop. Like it, you have worked at your craft. And when people ask me, you know, well, what are you, what are you defining as art for for your podcast? And I said, really, just anything that somebody has spent time working at to perfect or to dedicate to their craft. I literally use that word. Um, so yeah, I'm also team reclaim the word craft. I really do feel like clothing especially is an art. And I really like to scream that from the rooftops. I'm a big fan of outfits um, and, you know, wearing things that I've knit or putting outfits together. I feel like that too is, is a craft and an art. And I, I really, fiber arts is my, one of my favorite arts and you don't see it in museums enough. And when you see it in museums, it is so freaking cool. Like fiber art structures are gorgeous. Knit sweaters are gorgeous, like really complicated ones, sewn garments. Um, I've gotten really into when I go thrifting, like looking at the construction quality as well. Um, yeah. Team reclaim the word craft for sure. A hundred percent. Yeah, it's, like, a beautiful, like, we are, like, rising from the ashes of, like, well, you don't respect our stuff. Well, tough. We're doing it anyway, and we're doing it well, and we're doing it for us. And we're wearing it, and we're looking good. <laughs> yeah, like, my lab coat is pink. I tie-dyed it I pink. love that. <laughs> because I was, yes. like, I'm a scientist, and this is what a scientist looks like, and this is, you know, you know, a textile. We're covered in textiles all the time, almost a hundred percent of our life is going to be, you know, in some sort of clothing or bedding or something. And so I was like, well, I'm not going to spend eight hours a day in a white lab coat because why, why I'm a scientist and you know, that's what I want to wear and I'm going to do it. And yeah, I, a couple other girls in my lab have tie dyed their lab coats, like blue or purple or, you know, a little combination of colors. And it's like, yeah, that is a beautiful like expression of who we are. I don't know why we have to be like, very serious scientists that like, you know, I don't know, have to conform to the, what men have prescribed is what a scientist looks or feels like. It's like, well, no, I can do just as good in a pink lab coat than I can do in a white one. Why does pink make me so uncomfortable? (laughs) Yeah. And I love that you've, you've tie dyed it because lab coats, especially the fabric, the textile fabric that is used to make them is like a protective fabric. It, literally is meant to I mean not only protect the clothes you have underneath and the skin you have underneath but so you don't set yourself on fire with a Bunsen burner like it is supposed to prevent you from catching on fire and I just think that is really cool and I agree with you know um the whole idea of sort of rejecting I think the media very serious um pretentious sort of scientist stereotype because I know a whole lot of scientists none of them are like that they're all fun they're all people um we all have insecurities and stresses and things that we love and I do I'm a big proponent of a reminder that that scientists are also totally humans big old humans And again, I feel like you can say that for a lot of professions. Yeah. Yeah. 
and marine biology specifically is hard to like get that message across because like the coolest stuff that we do is like outside like we are all like we did this because field work is cool and we care about the environment outside so like uh, this is a big thing in our lab where it's like all of our social medias is like we're catching this shark and we're doing this and we're doing this but then we never see like the other side of science which is like you know sitting at your desk and looking at the data and writing the papers and you know doing all the science communication stuff so it's hard to be like this is what a scientist looks like in the field because that's what we know it's hard to be like this is what it looks like in the lab and especially in like the crossover microbiology a little everybody's a little more serious they dress a little bit more business casual than like ecologists we're all just you know in our tivas living our lives we love that uh so it's like a hard bridge to you know build when it's like I'm trying to present to a group of microbiologists who are like you're just some girl in a pink lab coat what are you doing but it like is at the base you have to be like well I'm doing really good science and here's what it is you know your perception of me based on my clothing is going to be a little different but at the end of the day like you're going to get the information that I'm telling you yeah yeah and that's all that matters yeah yeah I always say you cannot get a marine biologist to put on a a pair of closed-toed shoes until it gets below freezing. Yeah. It's not happening. It's so hard. And our (laughs) lab is like a closed-toed shoe-only facility. And, like, I was giving a tour of our lab to a new student in my, you know, Birkenstocks because what other kind of shoes would I wear? And I was like, this is – don't look at my feet. It's just pretend they're not (laughs) out and about for the purpose of today. Just – no one's in here doing work, so it's fine. But – do not perceive my toes <laughs> yeah do not perceive them oh yeah so if you weren't um an elasmobranch microbiologist or microbiome scientist i'm not quite sure which which term is um the better one uh what other branch of science would you want to work in Yeah, that's really hard because I guess I haven't thought about it for so long. I joined my lab that I'm in now in San Diego in 2019. So, you know, I was a teenager. (laughs) So it was like teenager me was just like, okay, yeah, this sounds good. Yeah. Don't say that. I feel old. (laughs) I was 19. So it's like almost not a teenager. But, you know, I've just been in this field for, I guess, like all of my scientific life, like all of my real professional scientific life. Um, I guess if I could pick a different field it would be more climate related I think the microbes are like I think I would still stick with the microbes but maybe in a different context um but if I had to part with the microbes I would probably do more shark ecology because that's kind of part of my project is in collaboration with someone who's doing the ecology of my organism so she's looking at trophic level and you know spatial uh you know relationships and things like that so watching her do her work is really cool and she does really great stuff and it would be cool to like marry the two with the two of us but it would also be cool to like look at it at a global kind of scale yeah like global shark microbe ecology and health yeah, because I think microbiology is, especially metagenomics, there's like, you get so much data from such a tiny amount of sampling. So like, one of my samples has 10 million sequences in it. So it's like, it's like gonna take me like I could do a whole PhD on one stingray, which 
makes it difficult to kind of look at global trends and like how does this you know one climate event like how do the storms in california affect like there's so many things that it's that are happening off the coast right now so like you'd need you know probably a million scientists to go look at that and you know pick out every single little tiny thing that's happening so it's hard to you know narrow it down to one thing yeah how how do you manage working with such large data sets to me that feels extremely extremely stressful i mean it's it's so cool to get that amount of information especially when you're working with elasmos which it, it typically is difficult to get large, large amounts of information out of them. Um, how, just how do you manage that? You say 10 million sequences <laughs> and I, my blood pressure spikes. Yeah, to me, I will never look at each of those sequences alone. We have a like wonderful team of bioinformaticians, which do all of the computing that is necessary because I am not a computer person at all. So if I didn't have them, I would be, my blood pressure would be up there. Um, but basically, for every sample, we put it through a bioinformatics pipeline, which basically picks out the good quality sequences. It picks out and then it, you know, compares them to the database. And then you get out a count of like, there were 10 sequences that match to a cyanobacteria and 10 sequences that match to, you know, a Vibrio or whatever it is. Um, and then I work with that one Excel spreadsheet that becomes many Excel spreadsheets eventually. But we do do a lot of like compressing the data in a way. So yeah, it gets less stressful later on, but it would be nice. One of our big hangups in our lab is like, we've looked at the overall community, but how do we dig into like each gene? Because there's so many of them that are just like, you know, floating around in the microbiome. We don't really know how they're interacting. So it's like breaking it down is getting overwhelming, but yeah. Yeah. And there is a lot of, if I'm remembering my, my basic biology correctly, there's a lot of gene transfer between prokaryotic mm -hmm. organisms like that pretty, pretty constantly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's like becoming a challenge because I'm working with microbes we've never seen before, because why would anybody before have looked at a poor Jackson shark and been like, you know what, I would like to know which microbes live on your skin. No one's done that. So it's like, you know, we got to go out there and try to figure it out ourselves. So taking the genes that we know is great, but there's this whole big pile of genes that we don't know what they do. So then it comes into the culturing where we're growing the microbes and trying to, you know, assign the gene functions or look at, you know, Vibrios come up again. They're the ones I've been reading about recently too. So that doesn't help, but they are, you know, potentially pathogenic microbes. They have lots of virulence genes. They're really easy to transfer. That's how they, become so resistant so quickly. So it's hard to be like, this is an unknown Vibrio. We don't really know where they got these antimicrobial resistance genes, but they came from somewhere. So we got to go look in the rest of the data to be like, okay, well, where did they come from? So it's hard to make those connections of like, you know, the evolution of these microbes on the skin of sharks. Nobody's really looked at that before. So yeah. New frontiers. <laughs> yeah. For those for those who are listening who keep hearing the word Vibrio and are like, what, what is that? It's a genus of bacteria and typically they're very pathogenic bacteria. And in humans, some species, or is it just one species? There's a few, but Vibrio cholera eating. is like okay, a big yeah. one that makes us sick. That's the flesh eating guy. 
Right. That is the digestive one. Okay. Um, there's also a flesh-eating Vibrio, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. But there's also nice Vibrios. <laughs> Vibrio fisheri. They live um, in the bobtail squid. They're the ones that make the bioluminescence. So, hey, that's cool. Yeah, it's complicated because they're all in the same genus, but one is a little happy microbe that helps a squid hunt at night, and one is one that is going to kill us. So it's kind of hard to, it's hard to, you know, paint with a broad brush here, but it is like a concerning, you know, if you went to the doctor and they were like, you, you know, your blood pressure is weird, it might not be a big deal, but that's like initially like, oh my God. So that's kind of how Vibrios are. It's like, okay, they're potentially something, but also could be nothing. So nobody panic. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Nobody panic. It's okay. You can get in the ocean. Please get in the ocean. Just, yeah. just clean your cuts when you're done. Yeah. You know, that's Don't all. go in after it rains. Always yeah. be a buddy. Yeah. If something's yeah. weird, go Don't to the doctor. <laughs> yeah. I did have to teach some of my students here about the, like, you shouldn't get in the ocean after it rains thing. And they were rather shocked. Yeah. Yeah. I was concerned. (laughs) Yeah. It's definitely weird here, too. Like, I noticed it in San Diego. Like, there's kids who have lived in San Diego their whole lives and have never been to the beach. And that is just, like, a side effect of, like, socioeconomics and, you know, privilege and things like that. You know, not everybody's going to go buy fins and snorkel and a mask just for like a one time, you know, go to the beach thing. Um, Not everybody has, you know, when you're seven, you're not really able to deal with yourself totally. Like you got to have someone to drive you to the beach and pick you up and supervise you and things like that. So not everybody comes from a place of that. Um, Adelaide has been interesting because it's like largely like middle class. Like most people here get paid a living wage. Um, My coworker and I joke because like we came here like for a better life, so to speak. Um, And now grad students at our old university are making more than us. Like if you looked at our salaries, because like we came, we came to this country, Australia from the U S I know. Um, And, you know, we were like, the quality of life has definitely increased, but like we are on poverty wages. Like we make less than minimum wage, like for the hours we work. Um, So like most people, generally speaking, have a like stable income here. Um, So it's definitely interesting. And like a lot of them have a relationship with like the surf lifesaving clubs on the coast and they do spend a lot of time in the water, but there definitely are parts of Adelaide where it's like, I don't really go to the beach. It's been there my whole life, but it's just sort of there. And it's kind of just like part of the geography of the place. And I don't really like enjoy it, which to me is crazy because the beaches here are gorgeous. Um, But it's definitely something to think about like when we're, you know, out there every day doing science and it's like some people have never been to the beach and they live 20 minutes away so it's definitely something that I've been thinking about recently yeah when I worked um at a marine science outdoor school we would have students who were pretty local maybe drove like 20 minutes 30 minutes to get to us and we would take them down to the beach for our first lesson of camp and there were some weeks where almost all of my students, that was their first time being on the beach, um, or at least half of my students, like they had never touched sand before. They'd never touched the water before. And they were just so in awe. And I was so happy to be a part of that. 
but also so sad that like that was their first time, you know? So, um, we, I always made sure to give them a little talk about, you know, ocean safety and, you know, please never turn your back to the ocean. Here's what we're going to do. Stuff like that. Just in case, you know, they're not getting it from anywhere else because I, I was lucky to grow up with, uh, parents who did do that, who like gave me the ocean safety talk and, and all of that. And I also will add about getting in the ocean after rain. I did it once. I went surfing and I got strep throat. So really don't do it. I got strep throat. That's the only time I've ever had strep throat. It was miserable. And I, I'm certain it is from getting in the ocean the day after rain. And I will never do it again. And I had never done it before. The waves must have been good that day. I don't know. I don't know what I was thinking. But yeah. Microbes will get you. Yeah, I would always tell my students that like, I'm not I'm not kidding. I'm not just telling you this to like scare you legitimately. Like it happened to me, you know? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Because like the ocean is scary. And like knowing Mm -hmm. how to be in the ocean has been like a huge comfort to me because like I didn't have parents who were ever like in the ocean. Like we went to the beach a couple of times a year, but like they're not outdoorsy people at all. So like when I got to college and like, you know, you learn all these things, the stingray shuffle, you know, the riptides and stuff like you learn them in school sometimes. Um, But like when I was becoming a diver, like learning how to be in the ocean safely was such a huge like relief to me because like I was definitely part of that camp where it was like lived sort of close to the beach, didn't like go a whole bunch, but like, you know, had some exposure. But when I became a diver, it was like, okay, this is like, the ocean is terrifying in all of these ways. Here's how you can coexist in that environment in a way that your human body will tolerate. And here's how to do it in a safe way. And that was such a huge like peace of mind thing. And I think a lot of people get afraid, but it's like the the respect that you can have for the ocean and like knowing the ways that you can, you know, interact is nice and peaceful mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and most of those scary harmful things about the ocean are typically not the creatures that live in it most of the time yeah unless it's like a, a scorpion fish or a torpedo ray or a sea lion i don't trust them yeah, this is a hot take, I but I am them. not a marine mammals girl at all. I'm terrified. It's not a hot take. This is a safe space. I'm also <laughs> not a marine mammals girl. Because, like, I feel like, like you know, when people are like, oh, the ocean's so great. Dolphins are amazing. I'm like, no, I'm terrified of them. <laughs> people are like, I want to swim with dolphins. I'm like, no, I'd rather swim with sharks. I really would. Uh-huh. Nothing makes me want to poop my pants more than when yeah. I'm diving and there is a sea lion in the distance. I'm like, please don't notice me. Please don't come over. <laughs> yeah. Please and leave me alone. Like La Jolla Cove, there's so many people there all the time. So like mm-hmm. when I'm diving there and they do the thing where they swim at you like mouth open and then like dart away really quickly because they think it's fun. I think it's terrifying. And it's like, you know where I'm breathing from. Like, you have the same bubbles that I do. Like, you know how this is happening right now. That's terrifying. Mm-hmm. And, like, don't even get me started on orcas. Everybody's like, oh, you know, killer whale's great. I'm like, no way. If I saw a killer whale, I'd be on the surface so fast. I'd be in the boat on the docks so quickly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't want to look at I it. Actually, yeah, I had a dream the other night. I was surfing. And a great white came under my board and I was like, oh yeah, 
cool, awesome. Like it just cruised by, you know, I've kayaked with them before they're chill, especially when they're like up on the surface like that, especially if they're juveniles. Um, of course, some people get really unlucky, right? But in the dream, a great white goes by. I'm like, nice. Then killer whales come by immediately to the shore crying like out of the water um and it it was so funny to me that like I literally had a dream that exemplified this but yeah it's beeline to the shore no no I have had seals harbor seals follow me around too underwater and bite my fins and out of the trifecta of um marine mammals you typically see diving in California like harbor seals sea lions and otters I will take the harbor seals over all um but I didn't like it did really freak me out the fact that the harbor seal was following me for 20 minutes biting my fins and I'm like my foot's in there what if you get my foot then I'm gonna have to go to the doctor then I'm gonna have to get like all of these shots I'm gonna have to take all these antibiotics because you can transfer diseases to me we are yeah. close enough yeah um and their mouths are gross i yeah. don't even want to know Mm-mm. what kind of microbes imagine imagine sticking a swab in there and plating it yeah yeah well like the newest not newest but like one of the things that's like coming out of the field now is like you know there have been a couple of papers on like stingray stings and like could you identify the species of stingray based on like the microbes it leaves behind from your st- from its sting or like shark bites like that's a big one where we're trying to be like the microbes in, you know, great white sharks' mouths look like this. And, like, if you get bitten by something, you don't know what it is. Like, take a little swab and see which one's which. Um, I have not resolved that in a useful way yet, but I think it is one of the things that we could develop. But, like, the stuff that comes out of their mouths is gross. I would not want that in my bloodstream. Thank you. No. Not it. No. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. (laughs) Mm -mm. um so to follow in line from the if you weren't a a elasmo microbiome scientist what would you be um what other art mediums are you are you interested in branching into in the future if any Mm. yeah sculpture is one that i've always wanted to do like doing clay kind of you know i don't know pieces i guess you would call them um painting I would really like to like but I don't have like the skills to make a good painting that people would be like wow that's impressive and I'm trying to like get comfortable with like you can just do things because they're fun and not because you're good at them um yeah yeah exactly (laughs) big mood on that one yeah it is hard and like watercolor is nice because like I like it because the colors just blend together and it becomes you know whatever the water wants it to be but like painting with like acrylic paint I'm not very good at because I don't Blending is hard. Same thing with makeup. Like, I can't, makeup is not my art medium of choice usually. But I guess painting would be my biggest, like, hurdle art that I'd want to try. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, so, do you have any final thoughts? Anything that you would like to say as we wrap up? Your, th- your thesis statement for oh, the my podcast. Thesis statement. <laughs> hmm. Sharks are cool. So are the ladies who study them and art and science are important together and separately. I love it. Nice and succinct. Beautiful. Awesome. Well, yeah. Well, thank you so much for waking up. I mean, I don't know what time you typically wake up or for waking up early on a Saturday morning. Yeah, I know this over is in Australia to this talk has been to so me. Good. 
yeah yeah thanks this for having was really me. fun yeah of course thanks so much yeah excited to listen to the other episodes too Thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode of Mutualisms, the podcast. I'm your host, Chessie. The theme song was written by Jay Hemphill. Podcast editing is also done by Jay Hemphill. If you'd like to keep up with us, you can follow us on Instagram at MutualismsPod. If you'd like to keep up with any of our guests, their social media information will be listed in the show notes. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe if you enjoyed today's episode. And thank you so much again, and we'll see you next week. Have a wonderful day.